Miss Shaw here. Over the next couple of weeks, we will be releasing some history podcasts to help develop your learning. The series will cover crime and punishment. Enjoy! Hello and welcome to your favourite teacher. Today we'll be examining the crime of witchcraft during the period 1500 to 1700, exploring the reasons why so many people believed in witches and how so-called witches were found and caught and how they were punished. During the early 16th century, it would be true to say that if you ask the question, do you believe in witches? The answer you'd usually get for most people would be a yes. A witch was defined as someone, nearly always a woman, who had made a deal with the devil to do his work, and in return, they would receive magical powers. The typical witch would be a woman, often from the poorer sections of society. She might have a pet, such as a cat, and grow herbs in her garden. She also might be quite old. Now, instead of thinking that she might have a pet as she was lonely, in the 16th century, the belief was that such pets were actually witches' familiars, the devil in animal form. The herbs, well, of course, they were there to help the witch with casting spells. But why were 90% of witchcraft accusations aimed at women? Well, to start with, it was seen as a norm to get married and be dependent on a man. So for those women who didn't fit the mould, it left them open to accusation. Women were the main providers of help when it came to childbirth or healthcare. So when something went wrong in this area, women were the first to be blamed. Finally, many old women outlived their partners, and those who found themselves old and unable to work then fell into poverty. They became a nuisance to some and again were left open to accusations of witchcraft. Now, it's in this period that we've seen a significant rise in the number of accusations of witchcraft. So, let's take a look at the factors that led to this increase. As we move through the information, you might want to make some notes, categorising the reasons into social, political, religious and economic factors. A good exam response would be able to show an evaluation of the causes, and so some analysis at this point might be helpful. First, there was the fact that monarchs at this time made witchcraft a serious crime. Witchcraft had been a crime during the Middle Ages, but it became a much more serious crime under Henry VIII's rule, when in 1542 he reformed the law so that now witchcraft was a crime punishable by death. Under Elizabeth I's rule, the death penalty was also used for anyone trying to kill or call upon evil spirits through the use of witchcraft. In addition, James I went as far as to write books about the existence of witchcraft. Before he became king, he had already written Demonology, a book about how to spot witches and put them on trial. During his reign, he also published a second edition of the book that included details on how he had been pestered by witches himself. And of course, the sentence of summoning the devil, or evil spirits, was death. At this time, people believed in the idea of divine right. That is, the idea that somebody had been chosen to be the king or queen by God. Therefore, for most people it followed that if the monarch believed in witchcraft, then they should too, as the monarch had been chosen by God, and at this period in time, the belief in God was strong. Religion played a further part in the increase of witchcraft accusations at this time as there is a literal belief in the ideas of good and evil, heaven and hell, God and the devil. Now, economics also had a part to play. There was an increase in poverty at this time, which meant that there were more people without jobs, 
and for those who did have employment, their wages were low. Therefore, in essence, people felt very stressed. So for the farmer, let's say, who had a blighted crop or lost livestock, rather than just put it down to poor fortune and bad luck, it now became the work of witchcraft. And who were these witches? Well, it may have been the old woman who had been frequently begging for food and cursed the farmer when he'd said no, or the old lady that he'd seen muttering to herself or casting spells by his cows. There was also the fact that now there was greater disparity between the rich and poor. The two sections of society mixed less and less, and the sight of the homeless or vagabonds on the street made the rich feel uneasy. So in towns where rich and poor existed together, it was often the rich who accused the poor of witchcraft. This may have been as they genuinely believed that there were witches, or it may also have been that they saw the poor as being a nuisance, and the accusations of witchcraft were one way of ensuring that they got rid of them from the area. It is also not coincidental that the English Civil Wars took place at this time, starting in 1642. It was hard for people not to take side, and communities, even families, became divided. In a time of such upheaval, there was greater poverty, and communities were split, and we can see how people at the time would return to their belief in religion to try and explain the chaos and destruction around them, surely the work of the devil and not of God. But who was there to catch these witches so that they could face trial? Enter Matthew Hopkins, who in 1645 appointed himself the Witchfinder General. Residing in Essex, we see the rise in the number of witchcraft trials in this area, as well as East Anglia, as a result of his work. He produced pamphlets showing people how to spot a witch, and then he relied on each area's justice of the peace to provide him with a list of those accused. Some were keen as there were rewards for this, but also, if they were not forthcoming, they might run the risk of being seen as a witch protector. So, how would Matthew Hopkins determine if somebody accused was indeed a witch? Well, to start, he would see if they confessed. And for many, deprived of sleep or basics such as food and drink, they sometimes confessed whether guilty or not. There were also physical signs such as warts that were said to be teats where the witch's familiars fed on the blood of the witch, or perhaps a birthmark or scar. Once someone had made a confession, Hopkins ensured that they provided lists of people who they were colluding with, so that he was never short of people to put on trial. If it was still not clear whether somebody was a witch or not, then in some areas the sink or swim test would be used. The accused would be drowned and if they floated, they were guilty, as the water had rejected them. If they sank, they were innocent. Cold comfort to somebody who was now already dead. It should be noted that this was not a method approved by Hopkins. So, what were the punishments for those found guilty of witchcraft? Well, the most popular practice was execution by hanging, and during this time, over a thousand people were punished in this way. But, by the start of the 17th century, we begin to see a decline in the number of witchcraft accusations. Why? Well, as is normally the case with history, this was down to a variety of factors. People began to question the evidence in some cases, although their belief in witchcraft remained. In 1647, Matthew Hopkins died, and so there was no one such as him left to keep the witchcraft accusation craze going. Also, by the middle of the 17th century, we had entered into the Enlightenment, where people sought science rather than superstition as the answer to their questions. 
The Royal Society was formed in 1660 and given the Royal Seal of Approval by Charles II in 1662, sending a sign to the public that science rather than superstition was the way. I hope you're finding the Crime and Punishment podcasts useful. I'm Miss Shaw with your favourite teacher. Thanks for listening. Thank you.